It is indeed a privilege each week, as, as Jeff prayed, it's a, it's a great privilege that I have uh, to be able to delve into God's Word, uh, to be able to take that time and, and open it up and, and to look at the original languages and to take that time and, and to really study it and delve into it and make connections throughout the whole of the Bible and then, Lord willing, bring uh, what he's given me here to you this morning and every week. And so here we are. We are here again to hear from God's word. We have been going through the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and if you've been with us, you know that we are nearing the end and today actually are finishing chapter 15. Jesus and his apostles, now the 11 uh, remaining that Judas has gone out and uh, and sought to betray Jesus. Satan has entered into him. Jesus and his final uh, remaining 11 have been uh, together sharing a meal, and Jesus has been giving them his final words. And so this section of John is, is a really important section because it's as though we, we get to be a fly on the wall, if you will, and hear what Jesus told his apostles that final night before he was betrayed and arrested and crucified. They have been in an upper room together, uh, but Jesus at uh, the end of chapter uh, 14 uh, said to them, rise, let us go from here. And so I think that as we've been going through chapter 15, that Jesus and his uh, apostles have been making their way through the city of Jerusalem. They passed by, I believe, the, the temple where there was a, a huge uh, mural uh, that Josephus tells us of a gigantic grapevine with huge clusters of grapes. And perhaps that's what Jesus used as his example when he, when he pointed to that and said, I am the true vine, not Israel. You are the branches. And if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit, just as these gigantic grape clusters show. They're making their way toward the, just outside the city, on the edge of the Kidron Valley, where I, I think it's there that probably Jesus paused and prayed in John 17, the high priestly prayer. Afterwards, they made their way across the valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, where Judas knew uh, where Judas knew of the place and would meet them there with the crowd. Chapter 15, so far, we have seen in verses 1 through 11 that Jesus has again encouraged them to abide in him. As he is the true vine, he's telling them, don't go anywhere, stay with me, abide in my love, my Father has loved me and I have loved you. And then from verses 12 to 17, he's urged his disciples to love one another sacrificially to remain in the church, to love one another in the church. And, and Jesus has reminded them he's laid down his life for them, his friends. Today, we finish the chapter, verses 18 through 27. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along as I read. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, you can use the Bible in the seat in front of you, underneath. If you use that Bible, you'll find the text on page 902. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. 
If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So if you want to sum up these final verses here, verses 18 to 27, you can sum them up this way. Jesus, after telling them to abide in him, after telling them to love one another, now follows up by saying, I want you to be witnesses to a world that's going to hate you. I want you to be witnesses to a world that is going to hate you. Verse 18, he begins, and it's a rather abrupt change. He's just been telling them, if you go back and just look at the previous verses, they're full of love. He's been talking to them about how the Father loves them, he loves them, and, and they ought to love one another, and now it seems like he abruptly changes topics. Beginning at verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He's just been talking about the mutual love that Christians have for one another in the church, and now he's focused on the world and the Christian's relationship to the world. And what he's saying is that if you have been loved by me, then you will be hated by the world. You know, I wonder if I had been there that night, and I wonder, you know, for those men that were there that night, what, what they're thinking at this point. I mean, so far, uh, Jesus has, yes, he started out sharing some dreadful news to them that he was going to be betrayed and, and that one of them was going to do it, but, but since then he's been giving them great, grandiose promises. And you almost wonder, you know, if they're starting to think that the Christian life and their particular uh, function in the history of Christianity as an apostle is going to be all roses, you wonder if they're thinking, hey, you know, Jesus, yeah, there's going to be some rough things that'll happen, but, but once we bring this good news to the world that Jesus is commissioning us, we are going to live a life of peace. That the people that, that we're going to be sharing this good news with, that they will meet that good news with universal praise and thanks to those who bring it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But regardless of what they were thinking, Jesus is going to disabuse them of that, any thought like that. He does not want them to be surprised. The reason he's bringing this to them is because he knows that they will face persecution. He knows they will face hatred from the world. 
and he doesn't want them to be surprised when it happens. Now in John, as I've mentioned before, the world, when you see that word, the world, it doesn't mean necessarily just the globe or the earth or kind of all the people on the world. When John uses that word, it means the system, the world system that is hostile to God. The the world system that is a rebellious system. The world, in John, is not a neutral place. The world, in the Gospel of John, is hostile to God by nature, by definition. And this conversation, what we need to understand is that this conversation that Jesus is having with these 11 men here on this night is not happening in a vacuum. This conversation is this night, this day, this next day, is what all of human history has been leading up to. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, what you find is that God created human beings. He created Adam and Eve. He gave them a lush garden to live in. And God gave them commands He said, you need to obey me. You need to live your life under my rule. I'm giving you rule over the rest of creation, but as my sub-rulers, you must do as I command you. What we find, of course, is not obedience, but disobedience. That Adam and Eve failed to do what God has called them to, that they turn, that they turn away from their creator and their master, that they take upon themselves self-rule, that they decide to be their own gods, and so what we call the fall results. And God brings upon this world the curse of death resulting from sin. God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, and we see in this whole thing that Satan is intimately involved. Adam and Eve did not sin on their own it was their sin but remember satan brought to them the charge that god was lying to them and so right from the beginning we see that there is someone else involved in the conflict that is going on in this world and when god is bringing down his curses upon this world upon the work that adam would have to do upon Uh, the pain that Eve would feel in childbearing, and when he's bringing his curses directly upon Satan himself, in the midst of all of these curses, we find one glimmer of good news. We call it the first gospel. In Genesis 3.15, in the middle of all of this bad news, God says, I will put enmity between you, speaking to Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He is going to crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. From that moment on, all throughout history, we see a cosmic battle ensue. The battle begins, and it is Satan and his offspring against God and his offspring. And the battle begins right away when Cain kills his very brother, Abel. And it continues. And it continues all the way throughout history until the coming of Jesus. 
And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he reveals that he indeed is the seed of the woman that was promised all the way back at the fall in Genesis 3.15, that he was there on the scene to crush the head of Satan and to fulfill that promise. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this picture. All you need to do is read through the Old Testament. In fact, we have, we have a, a, a big Bible, King James Version, that I bought, I think it was at Barnes & Noble. And uh, if you go there, they have lots of kind of old classics that are there. And it's kind of interesting. The Bible's just kind of one of the classics. It's part of, you know, Moby Dick and all these other books. And there's the Bible. It's just an old classic. But I bought it because it looks good. It's one of those big kind of leather-bound looking Bibles that you can kind of display in your home. And the other reason I bought it is because it's got amazing pictures, uh, artistic depictions of different stories in the Bible. And what's amazing is how many of them in there are some kind of depiction of a horrific scene. You just flip through it and it's picture after picture after picture of warfare and death and famine and all kinds of horrific things that are going on all throughout the Old Testament as this cosmic battle is being waged. We see this picture of rebellious humanity hating God and following after Satan who Jesus says is the God of this world. And then Jesus is born he comes into this sinful, rebellious world, and what does the Gospel of John tell us? Does it tell us that when Jesus arrives, he's welcomed with open arms? That everyone sees him to be the light in this dark world, that this world that has been full of massacres and horrific things all throughout, and death and suffering and famine, and finally, the light of the world enters, and we say, I can't wait and we've been waiting all this time, and thank you so much for coming and saving us. No, John tells us this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the light lest his work should be exposed. The light of the world came into a dark, sinful world, a world where fellow sinners hate and kill one another, and rather than run to the light, sinful humanity ran away from the light and ultimately killed the light. Speaking at that point to his then unbelieving brothers, Jesus in John chapter 7, he says this to them. See, the world cannot hate you you're of the world. You see, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's what Jesus told his brothers at that point. Jesus entered a sinful, hostile world, a world that had been hating and rebelling against God for who knows how many years. And when he said, the world has hated me that night, when he said that to his disciples, you see, the world, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I wonder if he's only talking about the hatred that they saw when he was incarnate. I wonder if what he's talking about is the hatred that the world has had against him from the beginning. You see, the world has hated me all of these years. 
And now that I've entered it, you see the hatred as they turn against me in the flesh. As we heard from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that they will persecute you just as they persecuted the prophets who came before you. The prophets came and revealed God's word to a sinful world, said, hey, you need to turn. This isn't right. God wants you to do this. What did they do? Did they embrace the prophets? The world turned and killed the prophets. <clears throat> and Jesus, being the perfect revealer of God, was especially hated by a dark and sinful world. And so Jesus here this night is not speaking in a vacuum. He is preparing them for the hatred and the hostility that they will face as well. Now, why will they face this hostility? Well, look at verse 19. He says, you see, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is where we get that idea that you've probably heard if you've been a Christian for a long time. Be in the world, but not of the world. We see that here, that, that Jesus is saying the world is going to hate you because while you will still be physically in the world, because I chose you, you are no longer spiritually of the world. Jesus has just told them the good news. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's great news. There's nothing in them that made uh, him want to choose them. They, they didn't have any great skills or, or they weren't out preaching the gospel already. These guys were just as lost as anyone else. But Jesus in his grace and mercy chose them. And so he shared them that good news. I've chosen you. You're mine now. You belong to me and no one's going to snatch you from my hand. However, that what he says to them, before I chose you, though, you were of the world. You were on the same team. You were on the same side. You weren't in some neutral category. You were just like the world was. And I chose you out of the world. Now you're on a new team, but you still live in the world. And that's why the world will hate you. <clears throat> Paul says essentially the same thing to us as uh, the Christians who came after the apostles in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, talking to us, says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, or Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. What Paul is saying is exactly what Jesus is saying, that Christians start out just like everyone else in the world. Christians start out looking and acting just like everyone else in, in their own way. I mean, we're all different in some small ways, but he's saying everyone in the world is, whether they know it or not, following in, in Satan's footsteps rather than God's. Whether they know it or not, they are in constant rebellion against God. They're following their sinful desires wherever it takes them. And they're doing all of this by nature, from birth. But then Paul goes on and says, but. But you see, God, being rich in mercy, 
Not because of anything in you. You were just as bad as everyone else. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And you see, God raised you up with him. He seated you with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Don't you see, Christian, we are God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says that it's when we were just like the world, we were on their team, we looked just like them, we were walking in the same direction, swimming in the same direction, going with the tide of this world, that God turned us around. He pulled us out of that by his grace. He made us new creations. And that God then by his grace works in us good works that are going to be different from the works that the world is producing. Jesus told his apostles the very thing that night. I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that will abide. So we could sum it up by saying that before Jesus chooses you, You are of the world and, we might say, bearing the fruit of Satan. After Jesus chooses you, you're not of this world and you bear the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible says that once God chooses you out of the world, spiritually, because you're still living here physically, you are now resident aliens. You are now exiles in a world that is not your home your home your citizenship is in heaven where you are seated with christ so the hatred and the hostility that the disciples are going to face jesus is saying here is not notice he doesn't stress at all that this hatred or this hostility is based on anything that they do It is based solely in what he has done for them and to them and through them. Just look at the words there. You're not of this world because I chose you out of this world and you're no longer of the world, therefore the world's going to hate you. He doesn't say anything else about anything that they will do. One New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, he says this, Christ's followers will be hated by the same world partly because they're associated with the one who is supremely hated, and partly because as they increase in the intimacy and love and obedience and fruitfulness depicted in these verses, they're going to have the same effect on the world as their master. They too are going to appear alien. He says this, the world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom all loyalty is due. Former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. You see, Christian, here's the thing. The thing that is most central to your life, 
the one who means the most to you, the one around whom your life most revolves, the one who you strive to follow most of all, that one person who means more to you than anyone else is the one thing that the world will most hate about you. That's what Jesus is saying. <coughs> now, I thought about it this week. And I thought, you know, imagine if you are a high school basketball player. And let's say you're so good that you've made your high school the number one ranked high school in the nation. You're so good that you are, you've led your school to national championships. And you're so good that before you even graduate from high school, the Lakers select you to play for them. Well, the analogy breaks down because they're picking you because of something good in you. <laughs> Jesus didn't pick us for anything good in us, I can tell you that. However, imagine that you are chosen by the Lakers. They chose you. They want you. And by this time next year, you're not going to be playing for your high school basketball team anymore. You're going to be a Los Angeles Laker. Now imagine if your former high school teammates grumble about that. Imagine if they start to uh, get angry with you or no longer think you're part of the team, that you've abandoned them, that uh, you were selfish to have taken that uh, position with the Lakers. Might that hurt your feelings? Yeah, probably. I mean, especially if you've developed a relationship with these guys for a few years, if you were close to them. But you see, when you consider what you've gotten that has caused the ridicule, that has caused the hatred, it makes that hatred and ridicule pale in comparison. When you are practicing that next year with the Lakers, when you're playing that next year in the NBA, how much does it matter to you that your former high school teammates don't like you anymore? Are you willing to give up your position with the Lakers so that they won't hate you anymore? See, Jesus could have said, he could have said to them that night, look, you are going to be bringing the best news the world has ever heard. You understand that? I'm going to die on the cross for sin. <clears throat> and this sin is going to take care of this, this death is going to take care of the two biggest problems in this world, sin and death. I'm going to eradicate them through my sacrifice on the cross, and you're going to get to take this to the world. And when you take this message to the world, don't be surprised when everybody throws their arms around you and welcomes you with open arms and thanks you for the message that you've brought because it's the best thing they've ever heard. Now, if Jesus had said that that night, and we had that in here, if that's what he said, let me ask you, Christian, how true would that ring to you in your life? Just think about your life. I bet I could go every single person in here, and you could give me some story about how the, about how the gospel, or in some way you've shared the gospel, has turned people off to you. 
I don't know about you, but I've found in my life, and I went through public high school, I went to uh, public uh, college, I, I didn't spend uh, most of my time, I grew up in the church, but generally speaking, I was working out in the world and my jobs, and what I found in my life, that the things that people in the world tend to like best about me are the things that have least to do with Jesus. It's when they find out that I'm a Christian or when I start to talk about my relationship with Jesus that the relationship begins to become a bit rough. And I can say without any hesitancy that it's become a lot harder since I've become a pastor. I remember when we moved up here, uh, our first day, the, the church was waiting for us at our home. We, we came up with the moving trucks, and when we pulled down the street to unload all of our stuff into the home that we were going to rent for me to be the new pastor, I, we see this big crowd out in front of our house uh, waiting to help us unload, and it was all the, I think, every member of Meadowcroft pretty much turned out. And as we got off, I felt so good and joyful, and I walked up, and the first person that met me from Meadowcroft said, hey, great news, your neighbor across the street wandered over here and was asking why we were all here, and we told him that our pastor's moving in. I just kind of like hung my head, and I said, oh man, there goes my relationship with that neighbor. (laughs) And it's true. I mean, for the three years, or was that three years we lived there? For the three years that we lived there, that neighbor had nothing to do with us. No matter how much we tried to be kind, no matter how many times Michelle actually walked over there one day and invited them over for dinner. They were an older couple, empty nesters. Michelle said, hey, we'd love to have you guys over for dinner. And the guy said, let me talk to my wife about it. And Michelle said, okay. Yeah, he said, you know, I don't know, it's going to be a lot of work for you. No, I make food all the time for my whole family. This would be no problem to have you. We'd love to get to know you. Okay, I'll talk to my wife. I don't know how long it was after that, maybe a week, a few days, Michelle walked outside. He was outside again gardening. And he saw her and said, oh, hey, come here. So she walked across the street and he said, hey, I just wanted to tell you, uh, I talked to my wife about you having us over for dinner, and you know, we've decided we'd just rather not. <laughs> Michelle said, really? He said, yeah, you know, we just, we've, we've talked it over, and we'd just rather just kind of wave to you from across the street. Occasionally, we'll wave to you, you wave to us, and that'll be good enough. And Michelle said, okay. And that's exactly how it was for the full three years we were there. Why? Why is it that this uneasiness happens? Because the gospel testifies against the world that its works are evil. The gospel testifies against the world that its works are evil. You don't have a gospel unless you first have evil works. There is no good news to be saved from anything unless you need saving because you're a sinner already. You know, if there's one place where you would think people would already be squirming in their seats and feeling uncomfortable and staring at the floor and crying and and not wanting to be there, it would be a funeral. I've done, I don't even know how many funerals at this point. 
And I can tell you, without exception, that there is far more squirming in the seats, far more uneasiness, not because there's a coffin sitting in front of people and that someone that they loved has died and that it's reminding them that they're also going to die one day, that doesn't make them squirm nearly as much as when I say what the remedy for sin and death is. When I begin sharing the good news of what Jesus did on the cross to pay for sin and death, that's when people begin looking for the exits. It's amazing. So Jesus said, they ought not be surprised just as we not ought be surprised. 1 John 3, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 1 Peter 4, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. Now, does this mean everyone is going to hate them? No. Look at verse 20. Remember the word I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus is saying, there's going to be two different reactions to you, just as they were to him. Jesus went around and preached. They, those apostles, were examples of people who found his message to be life-giving. Now, what Jesus says is that many are going to hate and persecute them just as they did to Jesus, but there are going to be some that are going to love what they have to say and are going to follow the word just as they did with Jesus. Similarly, Paul tells us as Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 the same kind of thing. He said, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And you see, through us, God spreads the fragrance and the knowledge of him everywhere. We, we, we Christian, are, are, are like this, you know, fragrance, this, this incense, you know, dropper. That God is leading us in this world and through us spreading the fragrance of Christ. And what does Paul say? We are the aroma of Christ. To one, we are a fragrance of death. To another, we're a fragrance of life. It depends on the person and whether God is working in them. <clears throat> but you see, Jesus says in 20, verse 21, all these things, you see, they're going to do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Scripture says that everyone knows God at some level. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, you see, everyone knows God because what can be known about God has been made plain to them. God has shown it to them so that they're without excuse. Everyone knows God. But you see, in another sense, the world does not know God. Think of the religious leaders <clears throat> that Jesus was dealing with that hated him. They said, where is your father? Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. There's another sense in which these people who know God, in the sense that God exists, they don't know Jesus. And I don't know if there are scarier words in the Bible than the words that we heard Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount that there are going to be some that are going to come to him 
And they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. See, why ultimately does the world hate Christians? Jesus says it's because the world does not know God. And you see, Christian, if you understand that, if you understand that the, that the family member or that the coworker or that the neighbor or that the, the former friend or that the, the spouse the former spouse, if you understand that all of those people that have rejected you because you are a Christian have done so because they are estranged from God, because they don't know God, and because one day Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, then that should produce in you not anger, but pity. Not anger, but sympathy. When we consider the fact that the only reason that we know Jesus is because he met us first. When we were just as lost. The only reason that we know God savingly is because God had mercy on us. Then we can understand why Jesus would say, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. I've shared this before, but it always amazes me that Corey Ten Boom, who was, uh, those of you probably have heard the story, maybe even read her book, The Hiding Place, but that she, as a girl, was put in a Nazi uh, camp, death camp, and that she was basically brutalized by a Nazi soldier, and that her beloved sister Betsy died in that same camp. Years later, when she was giving her testimony, had that same Nazi soldier walk up to her after she gave her testimony, and he said to her, I have come to faith in Christ as well. Please forgive me for what I did. And she said that was so hard for her to do. After everything that he had done for her, but that she said, I had to do it anyway because I knew how much I had been forgiven by Christ. And that he was now my brother. See, Jesus in verses 22 to 24, he isn't saying, when we, when we read these words, if I hadn't come, if I hadn't done these things, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that, I ha- now that I've done these things, now they are guilty. He isn't saying that if, if he hadn't come and done these things, the world would be completely innocent. No, obviously, everything we see from Scripture says that, that humans are guilty of sin regardless What he's saying is that I came into a hostile and a fallen world and that I was the best, the most perfect, the fullest revelation of God that this world has ever had. That I I walked with these people, I, I loved these people perfectly, I followed God's law perfectly, I did works here that no one else has ever done and they still rejected me. And when you look at Jesus who is unlike anyone who has ever lived and who perfectly reveals God and you say, I don't want you, then friend, there is no longer forgiveness for you. I mean, if you don't turn from that rejection, there's no forgiveness because the only forgiveness is found in Christ. 
He is the source of forgiveness. And so if you turn from him and say, I don't want you, then you don't find forgiveness outside of him. And Jesus says this. He says, if essentially you hate me, you hate the Father. They're a package deal. How many people in this world reject Christ, reject Christianity, and yet somehow, by their own mental calculations, end up in heaven? I mean, we probably know many people like that. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm not a Christian, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to, I'm a, basically a good person. Jesus says, no, that's impossible. If you reject me, you reject the Father. We're, we're, we come together. You can't have the Father without me. See, the Jewish believers, uh, the, not the believers, the, the Jewish religious leaders believed that. They were rejecting Jesus and saying, look, we have God as our Father, even though we don't want you. And Jesus said, well, wait a second, if you don't have me, then you have Satan as your Father. And here Jesus tells his apostles that it is the Jewish leader's very law that says that they're going to hate him for no reason. Look at verse 25. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. It's interesting, Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 69. Psalm 35 also uh, says this, but Psalm 69 I, I think is, is more where he's coming from because Psalm 69 is clearly a messianic psalm. The whole Old Testament points to Christ. But that psalm in particular is about a man, it's written by David, it's about a man who is completely zealous to follow God and be righteous. And yet, despite his zeal for righteousness, he is nonetheless hated by God's enemies. In fact, that psalm is quoted earlier in reference to Jesus, Psalm 69, 9, you see, zeal for your house has consumed me. It's quoted about Jesus. And what does the psalmist say? The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Every Christian, and you know this as well as I do, every Christian is still a sinner. We, we had to confess our sin earlier today. Being pulled out of this world and made new in Christ and grafted onto the vine and all of these things don't make us glorified yet. There are many times every day that you and I fail to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Same with David. David who wrote this psalm. Obviously the psalm can't possibly ultimately be about him because we know David was a sinner. The psalm ultimately is about the Lord Jesus Christ because there is no one who has ever loved his neighbor perfectly every second of his life like Jesus did. Jesus came to earth and he was the epitome of love. He followed God's law perfectly. He loved God perfectly and he loved his neighbor. Everyone that he came across, he dealt with them in perfect love. So Jesus, of all people, can say, there was no good reason for me to be hated by anyone. They hated me without a cause. I can't say that. Somebody's mad at me, a lot of times it is for a good reason. But not Jesus. If there was ever anyone who should not have been hated, it was Jesus. And yet, he says, he is. And what he's saying here to them and to us is so are those who represent him. 
So the question is, what are we to do? What are they to do? I mean, if they're going to be so hated, if we're going to be hated because of our allegiance to Christ, what are we to do? Are we to uh, kind of hunker down, kind of move into a bunker and just hide away from the world and, and hope that no one ever finds out that we're in allegiance with Christ? Well, that's, that's not what he says. <laughs> Instead, after Jesus tells them that the world is going to hate them, right away in verses 26 to 27, he says, look, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he's going to bear witness about me, and you're also going to bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. Now, Jesus speaking to them is giving them a, a direct uh, charge to be his sent one, his apostle. And in fact, because they were with him from the beginning, that gave them unique credentials to be an apostle, someone who was with him from the beginning. But the point is, is that Jesus is not saying, well, because the world is going to hate you, hide. I'm leaving you and you don't want to be hurt or hated by anyone, so just stick together. Don't go anywhere. No, in fact, he immediately he says, I want you to go out. I want you to be my witness. And that's exactly what the New Testament tells us. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed, Christian. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But you see, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We are to bear witness to the world of what Jesus has done for us. And I don't care if you've been a Christian for five seconds, you have the ability to bear witness to the world. The Bible says that God gifts certain people to be evangelists. Evangelists are especially skilled at preaching the gospel. The evangel or the gospel is not what Jesus did for me or you. The gospel is what Jesus did, his life, death, and resurrection. Some people are especially gifted in whatever situation in sharing the gospel. But every Christian, no matter how long you've been saved, can share with anyone what Jesus did for you. You can witness to what God did in your life. And that's what we're called to do. We, just like the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is like a cameraman. Jesus says the Holy Spirit's job is to bear witness about me. Some churches focus a lot on the Holy Spirit himself. Ironically, the Holy Spirit does not focus on himself. The Holy Spirit functions like a cameraman. You need the cameraman to make a movie. If you don't have a cameraman, you don't have a movie. He's an integral part. But if the cameraman turned the camera and focused on himself, he wouldn't be doing a very good job. The Holy Spirit focuses us on the Lord, Jesus. 
And just as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit bears witness about me, so I want you to follow and let the Holy Spirit help you bear witness about me. And so we are to turn the camera onto Jesus no matter what it costs us. And every single one of these men who heard that message that night lost their lives save one, and that was John. Every one of those men, other than John, died as a witness for Christ. Matthew died as a witness for Jesus, having been pinned to the ground with spears in Ethiopia. Simon the Zealot died as a witness for Jesus, having been crucified in Persia. Thomas died as a witness for Jesus, having been speared to death in India. James, the son of Alphaeus, died as a witness for Jesus, having been stoned to death. Simon Peter died as a witness for Jesus, having been crucified upside down. Judas, the son of James, died as a witness for Jesus, having been crucified in Syria. Andrew died as a witness for Jesus, having been crucified on an X-shaped cross, a St. Andrew's cross, from where he proclaimed the gospel for two days in agony. Nathaniel, a.k.a. Bartholomew, died as a witness for Jesus, having been crucified in India. Philip died as a witness for Jesus, having been crucified in Hillopolis. And James, the brother of John, you can read about his death in the book of Acts, chapter 12, as he died as a witness for Jesus, having been beheaded. All of these men died, bearing witness for the Savior who died for them. Jesus, you see, gave them the example, and he gives us the example. As amazing as Corey Ten Boom's story is, it pales in comparison to what Jesus did. Because Corey Ten Boom had to forgive someone long after he had tortured her and after he came up and said, I'm a brother in Christ. But you see, Jesus, as he was being crucified, the Romans said that crucifixion was the worst way to die. The Romans said that crucifixion Anyone who's crucified dies 10 times before he dies finally. The word that we have for unbearable pain, excruciating, means out of the crucifying. As Jesus was being crucified, as he was being mocked and scorned and humiliated and tortured in the most horrific way known to man, looked at the people who were doing it to him and said in that moment, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, and when we consider, friends, the hatred and harm that Jesus experienced that day, and in the midst of that, ask the Father to forgive them, then who are we, Christian? The least we can do is bear witness about him to a watching world, no matter what it does to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of what our Savior did for us. Thank you that he did not bring judgment on the world, although he could have, but that he came and instead bore the judgment to save us from our sins. And Father, we pray that you would give us the ability to be a witness as well. In Jesus' name, amen.